0: A long time ago, in a galaxy far, far away. Well, actually, it was only about 42 years ago, in 22 U.S. cities. See, on May 25th, 1977, Star Wars A New Hope introduced audiences to droids, a Wookiee, and the Force. 20th Century Fox moved the premiere date up to Memorial Day weekend out of concern that the space opera would underperform against other big films of the summer, like Smokey and the Bandit and Saturday Night Fever and the studio even had to negotiate with theaters just to get the film into the meager 32 venues in which it premiered. But the galaxy changed on that fateful day, and Star Wars proceeded to quickly smash box office records and become one of the first true summer blockbusters. On December 20th, 2019, the ninth and final chapter of the Skywalker saga will bring an end to a story that's been firmly rooted in the world's pop culture psyche for more than four decades. I'm Scott Brown, and on this episode of UNT Pod, we'll explore some of the UNT community's fondest Star Wars memories, the cultural impact of the franchise, and the enduring qualities of the story and characters that have brought generations of fans together. About five and a half weeks before Episode 9 hit theaters, Disney's new streaming service, Disney Plus, launched on November 12th, along with the first-ever live-action Star Wars TV show, The Mandalorian. That evening, the UNT Star Wars Club gathered in the Environmental Science Building to watch the premiere episode together. Nobody in the room that night was even alive when A New Hope came out. In fact, most of these Gen Zers hadn't even started kindergarten by the time the prequel trilogy wrapped up in 2005. But that hasn't stopped them from developing a deep passion for the franchise. And for most of them, that passion was literally passed down from the previous generation, as I learned when I spoke to club president Julian Mondras, social media manager Jaina Ice, and member Wesley Bellish.
1: I remember my parents um, showing me Star Wars when I was a kid. It was just so magical to me, and it was so, just the sheer scale of everything that was happening. It was like a fairy tale, but one that like I felt like I really got and understood and enjoyed, and it was very well crafted. And I mean, I just remember like nonstop when I was a kid. Once I discovered that, I was all over it for years and years, and I mean I still am to an extent. And it's, it, was, it was very nice for me to discover that for myself, and it was really my first, the first thing I nerded out about. My first introduction or memory, uh, my dad, he had like these discs, you know, like under like in the forbidden disc section. And like, I was just like, okay, I'm going to be a rebel, I'm going to watch it without him, because I wasn't allowed to watch it for some reason. Uh-huh. So I watched it without him for the first time, and I was like, this is amazing. And so every single night when he went to bed, I would just sneak it out and watch it. I first watched the original trilogy when I was very young. I was probably like four or five. Um, yeah, I really don't. I, I inherited all my mom and dad's like old Star Wars toys that they got in the 70s when they yeah. were kids, and like I remember playing with those. Eventually, I got like all of my own because like I grew up when the prequels are going on, so I had like all the different eras and stuff of toys and everything. It's probably just playing with the toys when I was real little, and then I just kind of like got familiar with the movies after that. Yeah. I think it's just kind of like always been like. Just a part of my life, just a part of my pastime and everything.
0: Many fans who fall into the millennial generation likely experience similar introductions to the saga, since they were also born between the original and prequel trilogies. Though the generational divide saw them discover the series via VHS tape rather than DVD, as was the case for catalog management librarian Kevin Yanowski.
1: I know my grandmother had the original releases on VHS tape, mm-hmm. and then, of course, in that time is when all the new, you know, they did a big re-release, they were going to do their special edition, put out all the second round of toys, all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. And so I definitely remember going and seeing all the re-release special editions in, um, in the theater. Mm-hmm. Definitely remember going and seeing that, but I believe it was just first experiences with Star Wars. It was just hanging out at home, watching them on VHS tape.
0: It was a different experience for the earlier members of Generation X, like mechanical technician Mark Lanier, who got to experience the birth of the pop culture phenomenon firsthand.
2: The first memories were the um, commercials that came on television. And uh, and so, you know, I was seeing these spaceships and uh, lightsabers and... uh, you know laser guns and things like that and i was kind of blown away by it and um so uh i was nagging my parents to you know take me to the movies and um and then uh our mom brought home uh, this bag of bread it was wonder bread and uh, on the uh, outside of the package it said that it had a star wars card inside the, the package of bread so Um, I started eating as much Wonder Bread as I could to to collect as many of these cards. And then, uh, finally my parents actually took me, uh, they took me to, um, the drive-in movie theater with my little brother. And, um, we were, um, we were laying down in the back of my dad's pickup truck and my parents were sitting in lawn chairs behind us and we're eating, you know, homemade popcorn and, (laughs) and, uh, you know, watching this movie at the drive-in and, um, of course, uh, uh, my, uh, imagination was just totally blown away by what, you know, what I saw on the screen. And, um, I, I can remember the opening credits come up on the, uh, the screen when you had that scrolling, um, you had that scrolling, um, uh, text, you know, it says in a galaxy far away. And, and, um, so, uh, those were some of my, my first memories of it. And, and, uh, and, of course, Princess Leia. <laughs> that, was, uh, <laughs> yeah, that was my first girlfriend, but, but she didn't know it.
0: Whether your first taste of the galaxy far, far away came on the big screen or from a VHS tape, a DVD, or Blu-ray, the impact and staying power of Star Wars is undeniable. Media arts lecturer Steven Mandeberg and assistant professor Jennifer Kors delved into the franchise's place in cinematic and pop culture history and how this story has been able to maintain people's attention for more than 40 years.
3: At this point, it's one of the longest running franchises it still is active, mm-hmm. right? Um, so, yeah, starting in 1977 or what, over 40 years later, and it's still, you know, breaking box office records, I think the franchise as a whole has made more money at the box office and in merchandising and all of its other iterations than has any other sort of piece of intellectual property, Um And the fan base remains extremely passionate, as evidenced by both um, positive ticket sales and also then the toxic fandom elements of it. Um, But I think as a piece of media in our fractured media environment, that is something that is still truly a mass phenomenon, not just in the United States, but around the world, um, that everyone, even if they're not a passionate fan, is aware of. And likely has seen or read or consumed some element of Star Wars at some point in their lives. Um, and that's a really rare thing to have something like that in, again, our really expansive media environment today.
4: Backing that up, but kind of, I'm, I'm not actually sure about the numbers, about whether it is the most. I can't imagine anything being larger, um, given its spread. But I've never actually seen that piece of data mm-hmm. interestingly uh, just thinking about that and one of the reasons is because it's so spread out um, before Disney bought it <laughs> um, so that like you've got little you know Lucas something or other got parts of it but you know it was Lucasfilm it was Lucas Arts, the game company it was I don't even, even know what the publishing firm was for all of the game for like bear books or Bain or whichever one was publishing them, where the money went. So I'm I'm not sure. It's like it's not like box office, where you have a clear number. Um, but uh, definitely, the money has kept it going as well as the fan base. The other important historical thing is that it was a very important example for the push towards uh, fandom. Really, um, I mean there are other earlier examples like Trekkies, but Um, It was important because of how it was both allowed and not allowed at various points (laughs) um, and uh, how that's led to new iterations of, you know, fan production.
3: Mm. Yeah, we actually do in some of my classes, we sort of track the fandom of Star Wars as a way to think through the ways in which uh, different technologies uh, have at different points enabled, encouraged, discouraged different sorts of fan behaviors and participation and texts. So mm-hmm. um, starting with the zines mm-hmm. in mm-hmm. the 70s, which were sort of physical productions, um, and then how that was shut down when George Lucas realized mm-hmm. there were uh, adult versions <laughs> that were existing that he was not thrilled about. Right? Mm-hmm. And then fast forward to the 90s, and I think he rightly realized with the internet and digital technologies mm-hmm. that now we're in a space where it's going to be harder to shut this down. So how can we let it happen, and, but in a way that I'm okay with? So we got StarWars.com. Mm-hmm which was an official space mm-hmm. that people could upload their fan videos. Mm-hmm. Um, but then you had to, if you uploaded a video, click the I agree that now George Lucas owns a copyright to my fan video. Interesting. Um, mm-hmm. So it was a good way for them to encourage all this fan stuff, but also control it at the same time. Yeah. And of um, course
4: that 1990s date is after about a decade of already pushing on to other media. We had the seventies to early eighties, the films, and then we had reissuing of those films. We had failed television shows, but then we had games throughout the eighties to nineties. With you know every single game has various console releases. Mm -hmm. Um, So and then Lucas filmed the game company, made Star Wars things, made other game things, and so you have this pushing into different media as well as, you know, the start of the internet and the turn of the 90s. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, start of the internet, start of the World Wide Web, not the internet, sorry. Like, a lot of things are happening at the right time, Mm -hmm. right? Star Trek was too spread out in Mm -hmm. some ways to be as coherent, Mm -hmm. right? There's no unified place. Mm -hmm. I don't know any other franchises that were really pushing at Mm -hmm. that point in that way.
3: Yeah, there's a really interesting piece that I've used in class before where they question Spielberg and Lucas sort of happening at the same time in the Mm -hmm. mid-late 70s. And did they and their success and what they were doing with their different films and franchises push the industry in a certain direction or was it that the industry and certain technologies um, sort of pushed them in a certain direction and they were just able to sort of take the best advantage of all of those different evolutions that happened between the 70s and today. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, that's something that's fun to think about. I don't know that we could ever answer it, but, but it is interesting to chart their careers and Lucas with Star Wars in particular, to see how it just sort of really fortuitously at every moment was kind of the perfect thing for what was happening.
0: Yeah. And you guys already sort of touched on this, but uh, talk about transmedia and kind of how critical that would have been for it. Because you, you're talking about a decade plus between the first trilogy and the second trilogy and then another decade plus before The uh, Force Awakens came out. So talk about how important that is for, uh, you know, having the TV shows, the comics, the books, all these different forms of media to keep that fan base engaged with the, the intellectual property.
4: I mean, with the movie, it's released. And then, you know, a year later, it comes out on video. Of course, this, of course, is something from the 80s. So Star Wars is one of the first to be able really to benefit from that. Yeah. Um, you also had, you know, the re-releases in the 80s when every new When Empire Strikes Back is released, you know, the first one is shown in the theaters again. Mm -hmm. Ditto for Return of the Jedi, so that you have these sort of reissues in the theaters to get people interested. You have the videos and the the beginning of VHS and home viewing, um, which brings out a whole new era of repetition and repetitious viewing. Um, You have the movement, as you said, I don't know about television shows that were particularly successful, uh, in the 1980s, quite yeah. honestly, or even the 1990s. It's only into the current generation with things like Rebels and some previous ones that were uh, that existed that, mm-hmm. that, that it's really been popular. Yeah. Um, but then you had all of the games, and one of the things that that repetitious viewing allows is generational viewing, right? Yeah. Like, so my father took me to see the things and then I played games and then I can take, you know, my child in that sort of like that generational element that allows it to be popular because when 1999 rolled around and, you know, episode one was coming out, what happened? Of course, they were reissued Mm -hmm. in the theaters and you had that, you know, the remastered versions of it and which can, you know, on one level generate the hype engine. Yeah. Um. But also, just get a new generation of fans interested in it. Again, I don't know any other uh, franchise that's really done that. And this is going to what Jen said that like at every moment of the franchise, it's somehow taken the right choices to gain in popularity, if not staple money. I don't know about that part. Um, but it's like if you think over to Harry Potter, like everything was pushed rapidly out the gate. Mm-hmm and you don't see any more, right? We do see new iterations, right, the Grindelwald, Mm. but you don't see a reissuing of the original films, Mm. right? You don't see a reissuing in other areas. It's sort of like it happens in a 10-year window, and then poof, um, which is very different from how Star Wars did, where it spread, and then it went, and then you have this sort of like keeping on with new things, with new things. Just really embraced the franchise logic, and I think one of the reasons for that is that it grew out of Lucas's control, right? It's really it's owned by a company, um, as opposed to say, Harry Potter is still, I believe, owned by an individual, with one might say integrity, but also a sort of a strong hold on what she believes the story is going to be.
3: Yeah. Although we'll see now that we have HBO Max if Warner Brothers is going to back up a really big <laughs> <laughs> Titanic-esque ship full of money and say, please let us do more. Yeah. <laughs> That's true. Yeah. 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 But today, Disney refers to it as their consumer touch points. And so, for example, with the marketing of Disney+, Plus, Mandalorian... All of that, they have very specifically talked about how can we take advantage of all of our consumer touch points to get at fans who have different interests at different places where we can get them into this larger universe, Mm -hmm. right? So from an industrial perspective, if you're a video game player and that's how you got into it, Mm -hmm. you start to enjoy the world and the characters and then that might push you into the movies or might push you into the comic books or push you into whatever other the theme parks the cruise ships dancing with the stars (laughs) you name it (laughs) but so you have on the one level this sort of really interesting narrative complexity something that the fans can get into and it seems like a kind of never-ending story world that if you enjoy it it has sort of no bottom right you can just keep going forever Um, and then from an industrial perspective that really practical if we have people with different interests and desires how can we get them into this space and now that we're in the streaming space of Disney plus how can we keep them in our Disney plus space so that they're not going to a netflix so they're not going to hbo max yeah whatever their other competitors are yeah
0: and steven you mentioned something i thought was interesting the making the right decisions at the right times uh, when the prequel trilogy came out It was kind of initially met with a lot of criticism from the older fans. Mm -hmm. But I talked to, yeah, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. But I talked to students uh, from the Star Wars clubs, Mm -hmm. and they were young children when that came out, and it was skewed towards young children, and they have fond memories of those movies. They recognize that they don't, you know, hold up quite as well. But that was kind of the right move at the right time to bring that generation into it, Mm -hmm. Because, you know, the older fanboys still all went to see The Force Awakens. They're, they're still, you know, very invested in it. And then that way they kind of hooked that next generation in.
4: Mm-hmm. And That generational element has been very important. And it is true that we all have nostalgic glasses whenever we think about one of those things from our childhood. We have much less critical about it, it's no matter what it is. Mm-hmm. Right? We now can look back at the original trilogy and think about how gender skewed it is. Um, but it you know seemed pretty good at the time right
3: yeah one of the good things about dealing with a franchise that has such passionate existing fans is that you can tap into that right you feel like oh they're gonna come back they're gonna buy the tickets they're gonna buy this they want more Mm -hmm. [4] but one of the tricks is that they feel so passionately this is something that was important to them from their childhood and so if you somehow put a new version a new installment Um, And it doesn't, for whatever reason, live up to their expectations. Mm -hmm. If it deviates from something that they thought was really important before, um, then you run the risk of really getting that backlash, right? Um, And I think for that one, too, if we talk about the evolution of technologies, I think that those get criticized for being that moment where Lucas was really at the forefront of digital technologies, visual effects, and really doing amazing work in hindsight. But there's the charge of you got a little too interested in what you could do with that and you forgot to pay as much attention maybe to the really important story character elements. Um, and so to what extent is this you playing around with your digital toys mm-hmm. as opposed to really serving the fans um, in making this the best story it could be? Yeah,
4: in hindsight, it also doesn't look as digitally good because of sort of Uncanny Valley problems where yeah. it was at that moment where it was just starting. So we look back at it now and in those technological marvels that, you know, we're playing with toys just don't look as good as they should. And so the, the story element which doesn't hold up as well for most people, um, brings it down even farther. <laughs>
3: And I think, too, you get the charge of, you know, Jar Jar was really just a character that was trying to sell toys. And so you start, yeah. to, once you have a franchise that does so well with merchandising, mm-hmm. you can start to also get into that trap of, are you sacrificing story for, um, well, let's put this person or character in here because, yeah, they they would look good as a plushie yeah. <laughs> or whatever, <laughs> right? Yeah.
4: <laughs> but I think another element that's... that's part of this is kind of a sunk cost theory <laughs> because i mean the fans even if they don't like the one they continue to see the next one it's it's got to be very very bad to stop that yeah. you know the amount of time the amount of energy a fan has put into the series by one and so you mm-hmm. know say they don't like the force awakens because there are a lot of people that did not right or um And, you know, what do they do? Well, those ones tend to then jump onto well, the television show is so much better, right? Mm -hmm. One of the television shows that are concurrent. Or, well, the game still is good, right? So that they're still holding on to that franchise so that the franchise logic still compels them. And then, you know, they'll see the next movie eventually because, you know, otherwise you have to give up, you know, that part of your identity. So I think part of it is, is then just, you know, how that, of time and energy has formed an identity that is embracing it as a franchise
3: and i think this next film is going to be really interesting in the way that we'll find out the extent to which they're thinking of it as a sort of finale to a resolution of the sort of core story um And the extent to which they try to leave open elements or introduce new elements somehow that they hope will then live on in other iterations. Um, And that's always another tricky thing to manage. We've we've seen with finales of television series, which you could almost argue at this point, this franchise is (laughs) closer to a long-running TV series than it is to any other sort of film franchises, um, in that there's so much time already devoted to these characters in this space. Mm -hmm. Um, And again, one of the pitfalls, you get people who feel really strongly about these characters, and if this next installment comes out, And we don't see the ending we want to (laughs) see for whatever reason, then then it might be upsetting. Um, Mm. Or maybe they'll nail it. They'll stick the landing and everybody will be thrilled. Yeah. And then
4: the eventual question, will there be a 10, 11, and 12? Yeah. Yeah.
3: (laughs) 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 Right. years from now you
0: never know yeah never seen
3: no. it. it'll be the vr ar experience yeah why not print more money, <laughs> right. um, you print more money. Yeah.
0: something you said this is kind of a side tangent but uh you talked about kind of playing with the technology and stuff and uh i remember one of the you talked about the re-releases i remember seeing uh i think it was a new hope again before i went and saw one of the prequels and they had changed they had put in like a digital version of job of the Hutt. so he's like yeah. Not walking but slugging along Han Solo talking to him and I'm like, What what is this? What did, what did they do? Like this is you can't go make edits to the Old Testament. Like this is <laughs> So
4: that's one of those interesting things and you got a lot of people that didn't like it, but that original scene was when Jabba the Hutt was just a band. Right. And so it was it was filmed and it was made but it was never incorporated. Uh, in the original release. And I think it was in 1997 that they started really playing with that. And it was the beginning of using digital. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of a precursor to, you know, episode one. And where he went back to the fully digital, you know, digital film. Uh, Not back, but went forward to digital film. They also did those remasters Mm -hmm. of all the old ones. So all of the uh, explosions were redone. They uh, added... Whole bunch of you know, anytime you saw uh, planes in the sky, well, ships in the yeah. sky, fighter jets in the sky, X-wings. I'll just call them that, right? Because that's yeah. what they were at the time. Um, you see, like fifteen more of them, right? So they were all digitally uh, included into the shots. Um, like you've got the explosion is is redone, um, lots of flashes, lots of like tiny little things like that throughout the entirety of the film were changed. And of course, you have one of the many iterations of Who Shot First Honor. Yeah. Right you yeah. Can't leave that one <laughs> out. Um, right. So you have that, the digital alterations of shots there as to who's shooting, who's not shooting, like moving heads to the left digitally, stuff like that.
0: Yeah.
4: Um, but all that, you're right, starts in that sort of 2000, that late 90s moment when he starts to change the text. Um, and it's that question of control, interestingly. Yeah. And that's not the last time that the owner of the franchise, and I use that loosely, has exerted massive control because when Disney ended up buying, you know, buying it from Lucas and suddenly owning it, they basically retroactively nixed all of the books and right, made them non canon. Yeah. So from when Lucas, you know, started approving these books there was this whole extra narrative of what happens after episode six, Mm -hmm. which is why they went back to, or I'm assuming that's why they went back to episode one instead of continuing the story. Um, And it, you know, they go forward, Luke gets a wife, Luke has other kids. I think his kids like kill each other and start a giant war and tons. tons, There's like dozens upon dozens of these books. And when Disney bought them, they were nixed, right? They were turned into non canon so that Disney could sort of make their own path. Mm-hmm. Just like Lucas was basically saying, you know, no, this is my story. I'm going to determine who shoots who. Um, you know, fans don't get a choice of that. <laughs> Except, of course, there is that war uh, as to whether fans do have influence <laughs> or not. And when it's a corporate level, that's a very big thing.
2: Yeah.
3: Well, and you have to assume i think that disney knew knowing these fans that changing that even that shot that people would notice and people would feel strongly about it and it would create a conversation and drive people now to disney plus to see for themselves what did they do what is this thing um (laughs) so in a weird way you get again all these different sort of levels but also just the complexity of the narrative and I love that in a weird way you get fans performing almost a film theory critical analysis of these scenes that to, to try to identify what are the differences, what do they mean in terms of the story and the narrative. Mm-hmm. Um, so you get almost a really academic study of these texts. A
4: lot of the conventions you get that sort of half-academic, half-fan mm-hmm. um, analysis. Um, Comic-Con is great for that. Yeah.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. And it's funny. It just made me wonder, like thinking about the remastering, because you mentioned the Uncanny Valley stuff of the prequels. I want. I mean, now I'm thinking, like, might they ever go back and like touch those up and make them look a little cleaner? Mm -hmm. (laughs) It's interesting. Well, and
3: then you get into just the challenges of now that everything's on Disney Plus and in the streaming space. Uh, I don't know if you guys were the, if you were Game of Thrones people, mm-hmm. but in one of the, was it the last, second to last The, the coffee cup? Yeah, well, the coffee cup one <laughs> won for sure. <laughs> but it was like the, I think it was, was it the Battle of the North? One of the big, where part of the criticism was that when you streamed it. Um, the image was so dark and mm-hmm. almost pixelated, depending on your bandwidth, depending on the compression of your internet provider, depending on your television mm-hmm. and its capacity, that you couldn't necessarily even sometimes see what was going on. And the, the cinematographer came out and said, well, this is designed for you to watch on a Blu-ray. Um, streaming, the bandwidth we have, the TVs we have, can't handle this mm-hmm. visual To which some people said, "Well, why are you doing that?" Um, But (laughs) Mm -hmm. but I think it's relevant in terms of Disney Plus and these questions about what are the visuals, what do we see, Mm -hmm. um, because you move into a different space and suddenly the question of literally what can you see becomes an issue. um, That you know, are we having to adapt the visual elements so that you can literally be able to see these things Mm -hmm. um, on your television screen? Um, and the controversy about the Simpsons going to widescreen. Oh, yes. Yeah, this. yeah, and apparently
0: <laughs> yes. cutting off the top and the right, bottom. Yeah, right, yes. <laughs> but that, of course, is,
4: is something that we already went through when we moved to widescreen TVs, and that the you know aspect ratios and
3: old 1980s VHSs were mm-hmm. it chopped up. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, um, and just such a weird choice to do that instead of just giving you the yeah, black just put bars the bars on the up. Side, yeah, right? <laughs> yes, yeah. yeah. I remember, this is a total cyber. when I uh, was uh, back in the day when Netflix was DVD by mail, um, and I, they kept doing standard <laughs> aspect ratios. So they would give you films oh, yeah. where they had, instead of going widescreen and cutting off the top bottom, um, had done sort of the opposite, right? Because mm-hmm. they said, I actually being the nerd that I am, called them and said, I want you to stop sending me these standard disks. This is offensive to me. <laughs> As someone who appreciates <laughs> what the image is supposed to be. And this poor customer service person who, you know, um, just said, well, a lot of people actually get really upset if they see black bars on the screen because they don't understand that that's supposed to kind of be there. And they think that we have cut off <laughs> parts yeah. of the image. And so we have to send out discs where it fills the whole screen because people don't get it otherwise. And they get upset. Mm-hmm. Um, to which I said, well, then you should just educate those people <laughs> and not don't inconvenience me. me right? Yeah, well, that actually explains why um, the
4: fifth elements like I have a disc mm. of the fifth element, and one side of it is the standard, mm-hmm. one side of it is the widescreen. Yeah. Of course, the wording standard yeah. is totally a lie because it was you know, it's chopped on the sides. Mm-hmm. But, mm-hmm. Um, that having a both and being that double sided disc, yeah. is because you know. Educates, but also don't <laughs> piss people off. Yeah,
2: <laughs> yeah. <laughs>
3: have either of you been on Disney Plus? Do you know, do they have any of those old Star know. Wars TV shows or any of that content on I haven't there?
0: seen the TV shows. I know they have the movies, except mm-hmm. for The Last Jedi. There was some rights issue where they mm-hmm. couldn't put it on there it's just yet. still on Netflix, isn't it? That might Probably. be right. Somebody still has yeah, the, the streaming Netflix rights to it, yeah.
4: Some of those rights. I think the Marvel films, too.
0: Yeah, several of the Marvel yeah. films aren't on there yet, yeah. yeah.
3: And then some of this is why you see the Stars ad on there is because some of the Marvel films they had given the rights to mm-hmm. Star Well, mm-hmm. given Stars had paid them for the rights. <laughs> yeah. um, and then the compromise was like Stars said, All right, we'll give it back, but you have to put an ad for us yeah. on your service. Yeah. Yeah, right. Yeah. Interesting. Like, what are these movies?
4: Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
0: Yeah. Um, I also want to touch on uh, historically. So, when this. When Star Wars, it's hard to imagine a world where Star Wars isn't everywhere and everything. But when it first came out in 77, it only debuted in like 32 theaters and 20th Century Fox had to like even negotiate just to get it into those theaters. I wonder if you can talk about like kind of Hollywood and cinema at the time and why it would have been met with so much kind of doubt and uncertainty.
3: Well, it was definitely a time when I think to your point, people didn't understand even what this movie was. Mm -hmm. Um, they literally had debates. Is this for kids? Is this for adults? This is a space movie. Who's going to go see a space movie? Um, and so just nobody could sort of wrap their head around it, in part because there hadn't really been anything like it before. Mm-hmm. Um, it was at that kind of made by a big studio with a decent budget. Um, and so, yeah, that was one of the reasons why they gave Lucas... Um, a percentage of the back end and merchandising and agreed to a deal that I think had they known at that time it would be so successful they would never have agreed to. Yeah. Um, but but they yeah there's images even of the um, the Egyptian theater on Hollywood which is one of the film one of the theaters that first had the film mm-hmm. and the crowds outside the theater were really amazing. And so somehow through their marketing, Uh, people heard about it they went and bought tickets and then it became a sort of event which is funny because it still is an event Um, but all those pictures of all those people waiting to see it the word of mouth that it was so good Mm -hmm. just really built up all this hype Um, And very quickly after that, they were able to expand out to other theaters. Mm -hmm. Um, But that was at the time, too, where we didn't really have multiplexes yet, Mm -hmm. which was a part of it, is that a lot of theaters were single theaters or maybe had two screens if they had split. Mm -hmm. Um, And so a lot of theaters really had to make a decision. And I think if it was something like that, that they weren't sure how to market, they didn't know who the audience was, they would rather go with something else that they thought was yeah. a right. known effect.
4: commodity mm-hmm. yeah. yeah so to jump off of what Jen said um, like in terms of audience remember that a lot of Lucas's sort of references within the film like his use of the wipe and you know the space theme are really from campy kids fair from you know the mid 20th century so mm-hmm. it's like it's got that low children's element to it but the story itself is really, you know, hero myth. It's straight hero myth. So it, you know, is appropriate as content matter for anybody. Mm. Right? It's, it's aimed at being, you know, universal danger term. But like it's really trying to be like we can have this story for anybody. Right. The hero myth being from any you know, very many, very many cultures across the world. So it can be sort of accepted and seen by anybody so that you have this friction between children's versus adults. And you see that now. But ironically, like most studios have uh, really jumped on that. Right. We see that from Pixar and beyond where most films aim to do both. Mm -hmm. Right, You have those jokes in there that are for the adults. But it's, you know, a children's movie. Mm-hmm. But at that time, that wasn't really happening, right? Kids' mm-hmm. movies are Disney, right? And you know, they're not really for adults. Um, and this, in part, is that, you know, change in, in, in how movies were made. But it's also a sort of a 1960s to 70s resurgence of Hollywood post- you know incursion of television and you know the breakup of the studio system and then what is hollywood doing what are films you know reforming in the 70s 60s and 70s and you know films jumping onto the like we're going to be gritty we're going to be edgy we're going to be what tv can't be um sort of going down that sort of particular route and then you know kids fair being the other side of that where it's really just saccharin. and disney Mm -hmm. stuff so it's like it's breaking with that formula that that most hollywood films had grappled onto throughout the 70s um so this is another way that it sort of breaks apart or sort of like causes friction Mm
3: -hmm. yeah because it was what the late 60s where you had all the success of things like bonnie and clyde Mm -hmm. and easy rider Mm -hmm. that were the sort of indie uh, but very adult (coughs) films and you move into the 70s, and you end up with like a Scorsese, Scorsese, Scorsese <laughs> and his films, again, very adult. Mm-hmm. Um, and so those were the things that were really sort of doing well at the mm-hmm. box office. Um, And you didn't even have a PG-13 rating at that time. At that time, Mm -hmm. you were R or you were PG. Mm -hmm. Um, And it wasn't until the 80s that we got PG-13. So even just in that, you see almost a reflection of there wasn't even a conception of something that could kind of exist in that middle ground. It was Mm -hmm. like kid stuff or it was adult stuff. Mm -hmm. Um, And it wasn't until really Lucas and Spielberg that there was this sort of, oh, this is something that can be for, you know, it's not animated kids kids it's not you know taxi driver yeah
0: (laughs) (laughs) and then episode nine coming out in december uh obviously this isn't going to be the end of star wars they've got you know the shows on disney plus they've already announced that you know they're bringing kevin feige over from marvel to do more movies um so it's not the end of the franchise or the ip but it's the end of this skywalker saga what has made this specific story so kind of compelling that it started f- over forty-two years ago and people are still so invested in it?
4: Um, I mean, this goes back to my previous answer of it's the hero's journey. Yeah, it, it started with popularity because of the hero's journey and the easy grappling of identification. I think where it then kept up, uh, fan really love is is the characterization. Um, And one of the things that it does well is give you characters that last throughout them and gives you just enough diversity, not necessarily great diversity, but just enough so that you would be able to find somebody Mm -hmm. you like, Um, so that it allows you to really like over the era.
3: Mm -hmm. I think a relatively clear good versus evil, relatively Mm -hmm. clear character archetypes that we can all relate to. And so even though it feels like often you go into these movies and there's something new. We wouldn't keep going back if there wasn't something new or something interesting happening. Um but at the same time it's still very you know, it's very in line with traditional storytelling, traditional characters. Um and I think that comfort it's almost like a comfort food at a certain level too. Um and then, yeah, we always get the great technology, mm-hmm. um, which is fun to see.
4: I'd say that, it, that that I totally agree, except until episode eight,
3: mm-hmm.
4: where it really sort of goes postmodern in many ways, mm-hmm. right? Like, it, it doesn't have a clear story. There's tons of fragmentation. There are no clear archetypes. There is no good, clear, good, and evil. And uh, it, it's kind of unsurprising then that that's the one that received a lot of significant backlash from fan bases in terms of like, this is not really Star Wars, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> and, you know, there's an entire, like, uh, uh, basically sexist edit where they sort of remove all of the women from this yeah. um, and sort of re-tell the story as, like, you know, a easy-to-digest good-versus-evil men-on-top sort of thing. Um so it's really interesting because that, that one really sort of breaks with that mm-hmm. previous ease. Yeah. Um, so it'd be interesting to see what happens with this one.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, thank you guys both so much for, for joining you. us and lending us your expertise. I yeah, yeah. uh, really appreciate it.
3: Absolutely. Fun to talk to you. Come take our class. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Although Star Wars will continue to live on well beyond episode 9, it does represent the end of the Skywalker saga that began back in 1977. With millions of fans around the world eagerly anticipating a finale four decades in the making, it's going to be impossible for the rise of Skywalker to please everybody. Which is why many fans are approaching the film with phrases like cautiously optimistic and tentatively hopeful.
1: I mean, I'm just really excited. I like how Disney's like trying to like reintroduce like the new like sequel. to try to get the uh, newer generation into it as well. Mm-hmm. I'm just wondering like how are they gonna go together? Are they is one of them gonna go to like the dark side? Will Kylo Ren go to the like, good side? I don't know. I'd say I'm cautiously optimistic. I haven't like 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 tuned out. Yeah, I'm still interested to see how it how it ends. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I'm 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 ready to move on to something else at this yeah. point. It's uh, re- kind of ready to put the sequels behind me. I'm tentatively excited. Yeah, I mean, I'm just hoping that. It turns out to be as good as I'm expecting it to be, and then it doesn't end up being another Last Jedi.
0: But no matter how this saga ends, there's no denying the impact Star Wars has had on its fans across the generations.
1: That's well, hard to put into words. But it's been something that I can't really put a pinpoint on when it first entered my world. Mm-hmm. And to that end, I don't know i i don't know a time where it wasn't part of my world i've also just learned so much about it and it's definitely the thing that i'm the biggest nerd about i don't know if there's a good way to sum up what star wars sort of means to me other than it's just definitely part of my life part of my every day almost
2: i think about how um how i got to see it from the very beginning and uh when um when nobody had ever seen anything like that. So I kind of feel like uh, I was a part of it from the from the beginning. I feel like I've appreciated it longer yeah. <laughs> than most people have.
0: Thanks for listening to UNT Pod. Before you venture off to a galaxy far, far away, tell us about your favorite Star Wars characters and moments by connecting with us on Twitter at UNT Social or on Instagram at UNT. And may the Force be with you.